So, good evening, friends. How is your silent retreat going? Thumbs up? Okay, wow. This is good. Shout out some words, actually. I know this is going to be hard for you to speak. You haven't spoken much today, but just give me a few words here and there. Yeah, exactly. La- okay, all right. It's okay. I'll just take the gestures. Maybe I'll just take sign language. Okay, great. I'm I'm glad. So delighted to be here with you and and retreats. Um, those of you who've done them before, you know that they're wonderful, even when they're awful, even when they're painful, and it's just like I can't wait for it to be over. And ah, this is awesome. This is great. Oh, I can't wait for it. <laughs> Anyone has had that experience perhaps today? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't, wait. Just, just, just wait. <sighs> yeah, and if it is your first retreat, we're delighted you're here. Please hang in, hang in there. Every moment is not easy, but it's rewarding. It's juicy. It's, yeah, it's good. I just sat... Um, a three-week self-retreat right before coming to teach this retreat. It was awesome. I didn't want to come. I just, I just wanted to sit and continue to meditate and just be, just do my meditation thing. You know, I'm a practitioner first, and I happen to teach, but I'm really a practitioner first. First and foremost, first and foremost. And it's really a privilege to be able to share um, what I can of my practice with you and, and I hope it can support your practice. Um, so for tonight's offering, um, there will be a little bit of science and hopefully a lot of dharma just pointing to your experience. And I really appreciated my colleague's talk last night because he tried the same thing. This is a meditation retreat first and foremost. You're with your experience first and foremost all the time. And we're dropping in a little bit of science. So I appreciate him doing that, really pointing to your experience, pointing to your practice, to your practice. It's about practice. It's really about that, and just a little bit of science. So, and whatever I share tonight, um, please take whatever is useful to you, to your life, to your practice, to your being, to who you are, to your cultivation, to your development, to your cultivation of compassion and wisdom. And whatever is not helpful, don't take. Leave it in the hall. Just leave it. It's offered. It's a gift that's offered. You can take part of the gift, the part that works for you, and leave whatever doesn't. Okay? We have that agreement? Okay, great. So, the way this talk came to me this afternoon was... was... um, about being a scientist of your own mind, being a scientist of your own mind. 
And the way, the first part that it came to me this afternoon was when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a scientist. And if I were speaking to that young girl today and teaching her meditation and supporting her in her practice from the perspective of an older Nikki who has been a scientist for many years and um, and published a lot of scientific papers and patents and supervised other budding scientists and all that stuff. So from the perspective of scientist, what would I say to a practitioner, a younger me? So that's kind of how it came, the first part of the talk came up, we'll see. So what I would say is, first thing I would say, maybe, maybe this is what it would sound like if I talked to my younger self. Um, and advise myself to be a scientist of my own mind, so advising you to be a scientist of your own minds. That you have an amazing, an amazing laboratory, an amazing first-person laboratory that is your embodied mind, that is your heart, is your mind, your body. This is an amazing laboratory. Wow. We just pause for a moment with me, if you would, in this moment, and just reflect on this amazing being that is you, that can see, that can hear. How do you hear? I don't know, it just happens. How do you think? I don't know, thoughts just come up. This mystery of existence, isn't it amazing? We just take it for granted, but just it's amazing to wake up and be this. It heals itself. I don't know how to heal myself when I get a cut, but it, this body knows how to heal itself. It's amazing. It knows how to digest food. I don't know how to digest food. It just does it. Right? It's amazing. And it's, it's sitting right here on every single seat here. You have an amazing laboratory. Hallelujah. Makes you want to kiss the ground. This is amazing to be alive, to have this laboratory as a scientist. Fun. Investigating. So this sense of fun, this sense of awe, this sense of amazement to what this mind and body are. And first and foremost, really, as, as a scientist, to have deep, deep humility, really deep humility, and don't know mind. A deep don't know mind. To have humility about your subject when you're studying it as a scientist, you don't know. And humility about your body, about your heart, about your mind. And how little we know, how little our society, our culture really knows, our science really knows about this amazing you. You know, in physics, there was Galileo, there was Descartes, Newton, and then Einstein. Whoa! 
looking back and thinking, oh, simple Newtonian physics, oh, that was simple models. And then quantum physics, string theory, Higgs boson, whoa, some stuff you know, sounds like science fiction, right? Looking back, how far science has become and keeps becoming, you know, 100, 200 years, we'll look back and say, wow, that was simple thinking, They're pretty simple. So the same way, there is so little we know about the brain. So little we know about the brain. So really approaching that with deep, deep, deep humility. Deep humility. Jeff Lichtman, who's a neuroscientist at Harvard University, a well-known researcher, he asks, if everything we need to know about the brain is akin to the distance of one mile. Everything we can possibly know about the brain is a distance of one mile. How far do you think we have come so far in studying the brain? How far have we come? Shout out numbers, will you? 43 miles. 43? 43. 0.3 miles, three tenths of a mile. Okay, what else? Other. An inch, a millimeter. Let's hear it. What else? Actually, we don't know until we get done. That's good, too. I like that. We don't know until we get done. So, a few more. Ten feet. Ten feet. One thousandth of a millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, you're closer. It's, he says, three inches out of a whole mile. We know three inches out of a whole mile. About three inches. That's how little we know. That's how little we know about the brain. It's the next frontier. There are a hundred trillion number of neural connections or synapses in the human brain which is at least a thousand times the number of stars in our galaxy. You dig that? Each of your brains sitting has a thousand times more connections than the number of stars in the galaxy. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So my friend, neuroscientist Cliff Saren, puts this poetically, that what we know is simply a cloud of consensus floating over a sea of unknowing. A cloud of consensus over a sea of unknowing. So you can only imagine years from now, 100, 200 years, they'll look back at the brain models we have and they go, oh, that was so simplified, <laughs> Right? So, humility, deep, deep humility. <clears throat> Einstein says, what I see in nature is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only very imperfectly and that must fill a thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling that has nothing to do with mysticism this feeling of awe, this feeling of amazement. 
about nature that is us. So, <clears throat> as we share and as you hear us share the current models, perhaps, you know, if you hear us talk about the you know, lateral cortex does this, prefrontal cortex does this, please understand that this is a gross simplification of how really our brain actually works because everything is connected to everything in our brain. It's actually put rather well by Amishi Jha, who is another respected neuroscientist, in an article I do recommend. It's in the Mindful magazine, uh, June 2018 issue. And it's called, the title of it is, The Magnificent, Mysterious, Wild, Connected, and Interconnected Brain. Pretty cool title. Mishija is pretty cool too. It's an interview with, with her and Cliff Saren, another leading neuroscientist. So she says, in terms of simplified models, she said, she, uh, I won't read the beginning, but uh, she's... Um, She's talking about how she was trying to explain, you know, given, giving simplified models to her daughter, explaining the brain, how the brain works to her daughter. So she says, um, my daughter was seven at the time. She jumped up at my, on my lap while I was working on my computer. She ended up picking up a model brain I had sitting around. Not surprisingly, she took the whole thing apart. She lifted up one piece after another and asked, what does this do? With the occipital lobe, I said something like, it helps you to see. For the temporal lobe, it helps you to hear. For the cerebellum, it helps you to coordinate what's coming from all your senses, and so on. I was just giving her simple answers because I was trying to work. Mothers will understand that. At some point, though, I said, no, let's not do it this way. Let's talk about how this actually happens. Then I talked to her about how, how all of these parts never work alone. They always work together, but they work in specific ways together. As an analogy, I asked her to think about what body parts she would use to do a cartwheel. She said, I need my hand, and that's connected to my arm, and that's connected to the rest of my body. As I coaxed her through the investigation, she realized she needed all those parts and more and she needed them to move together in a pattern that results in the cartwheel. That's a pretty good way to think about how the brain works. All of these different parts talk to each other, and they need to act together for us to accomplish something we're trying to do. She seemed to get that you can't just think of the parts in isolation. You always have to think of how they work together with other parts, and with the whole. So I think you can be simple and accessible and also correct without introducing a lot of distortion. So if you've come to this retreat, the assumption is that you've been 
interest, you are interested in science, or maybe this was just the right time of the year, and you know you had nothing better to do. That's good too. We 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 were happy you're here. We love that you're here. Um. So the um. Just to say a little more, actually, you know what? I, I'll share a little more from Amishi Jaws because she she puts it so well. I'll I'll read another paragraph or two. So she says, "You get into trouble when you imply that what some people call, say, the upstairs brain, referring to the executive function, does all the beneficial regulating and balancing." treating the frontal lobes almost like a character in a story, the good guy, the white knight, can lead to the view that everything that flows from strong executive control is beneficial. The reality is that someone with high working memory capacity and very good executive control could do some very bad things. Just because a particular brain network can do good things, it doesn't mean that what it does is always for the good. And also, many studies have found that the brain organizes itself into functional networks that vary in their activity and in their uh, interaction over time. For example, we have the central executive network, which has to do with the ability to harness our resources to control uh, what we're processing more fully. So it's a network. It's not just one thing. It's just a whole network interconnected across the whole brain. There is the salience network involves being aware of what's happening internally and in the environment. The default mode network, which uh, Rick mentioned, um, we think of as what the brain defaults to when you're not attending to a task. These three networks and specific networks within these networks and other networks as well. So you get the sense there's a lot of networks, there's a lot of interconnection, a complex system. As a part of landscape, we're going to have to deal with um, when we consider how our brain's information processing resources are utilized for the task at hand and what might be going on when someone experiencing rumination, worry, or flashbacks due to PTSD. It's not about good guys and bad guys, like good part of the brain, bad part of the brain. It's about the dynamic interactive ways various networks function in relation to each other as we experience and navigate the present moment. So one reason to hold this and to, to open to hold this with, with deep humility, the little that we know, and, and the three inches out of the mile that we know, is, you know, if, if a model supports your awakening, great, more power to you. But if a simplified model, you're making the devil's bargain unknowingly, unconsciously. Because science says, if you're making the unconscious devil's bargain and trading, practicing, deepening your wisdom and your compassion and really sitting with these deep, beautiful practices that we know work, and trading those in 
for an attempt to say, quiet your reptilian brain and your sending energy to this part of your head, you know, these simplified models, if you're trying that, you're spending so much time doing something that's not productive. That's, that doesn't lead to awakening, right? It's a simplified model. You get what I'm saying? So spend your precious life practicing in the ways that help you wake up be f- your heart be filled with compassion, with love, your mind to be wise, your heart to be wise, which changes the way you, you live. So as long as models are helpful, fine. But make sure you're not getting into a devil's bargain. So as, as wise, educated consumers of scientific data, I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. Is that clear? Yeah. So don't set your sights short on the neuralist, materialist view because your whole being is so much more than just your brain your whole being, the totality of your experience, who you are. It's so much more than just the, the activities of your brain. You know, the same way that the healthcare system sometimes reduces the totality of a human being to just, oh, there is an appendicitis in room two, there is lung cancer in room three, you know, reducing the totality of an experience of a human being just to their numbers or their condition or a body part. Don't sell yourself short. Don't, don't reduce yourself to just the activity of your brain. There's a whole totality to your being that's so much more than just the activities. There's a lot more that, that we don't know. And that's the aspect of the don't know mind, that deep humility, that don't know mind. And not knowing can be uncomfortable, but it's really fresh. Suzuki Roshi in the beginner's mind says, in the beginner's mind, in the Zen mind, in his book Zen Mind says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. But in the expert's minds, there are few. So in the beginner's mind, the mind that doesn't know, the mind that has humility, there's so many possibilities that don't know mind. So the advice to be a scientist of your own mind, having humility, having a don't know mind, having respect for the totality of your experience, and your embodied mind, earlier I mentioned embodied mind is your laboratory. Let me explain a little more what I mean by embodied mind. So mind, in the West somehow we think, you up. It's in the brain. There is this wonderful photo from 1992 when a group of scientists went to Dharamsala to meet with the Dalai Lama uh, for one of the first mind and life uh, meetings. And um, 
there is the, in this photo you see the front of the room. Um, uh, there's the scientists. There's Richie Davidson in the back, and there's Francisco Varela in, in the front with an EEG cap, and another scientist. And the monks are laughing. They're laughing. And the story goes, um, when they are told that uh, these scientists have come to study the mind, uh, they're all laughing, because why are they looking there for the mind? The mind is here. Why are they looking there in the head? So in Pali, in the language of the Buddha, the word uh, citta, C-I-T-T-A, is translated as heart mind. Heart mind, heart mind. I love that, heart mind. It's your heart, it's your mind, it's, it's a combination, your heart. You love, your love, your care. You know, it feels like it's here, not here, but it's here. So it's heart mind, just kind of, you know, don't focus it just in one place. But to make the matters even more interesting in respecting the totality of, of who you are and what you are, not just the neural activity of your brain, is um, you have probably heard about the microbiome, the human microbiome. So the human microbiota includes bacteria, fungi, um, archaea, and viruses, and microanimals that basically live on the human body. Oh, actually, those are excluded, sorry. But the human microbiome refers to their genome. And the estimate was that the humans are colonized by many microorganisms. And the first estimate was that we have 10 times more non-human cells than human cells. Recently, the estimate has been lowered to 3 to 1, or even some people think it's 1 to 1. But even 1 to 1. This body, I have as many non-Nikki cells as, I, as there are Nikki cells, and that's me. That's pretty wild. And what's interesting is that my functioning, my, um, all, for all of us, our immune, immunologic, our Im- immune system, our, our hormonal system, our endocrine system, our metabolism, uh, they're dependent on all these non human cells, that if they were not in our bodies, we wouldn't be functioning. We could not function. So that's who you are. And it goes another step. So, for example, if you had sugar cravings, it could be because there is yeast, candida, who generally lives in your system. It's one of these, you know, it's part of our system, lives on our skin, lives in our gut. Sometimes where is it when there's too much of it? That's what they want. Yeast loves sugar. So sometimes when you've had sugar cravings, guess what? It's not you. It's not your brain. It's the yeast. And here's another one. Now this is a freaky one. So there is a p- parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. It's a parasite that infects up to a third of people around the world. But it, it happens that if mice get it, it permanently alters um, the brain of the mice and it removes 
the mice's innate fear of cats. And guess why it does that? The reason why this parasite changes the, the behavior of cat, so the cats actually go, they, they lose their fear, and they get eaten by the cat because um, this bacteria grows, uh, um, this parasite grows best in the gut of the cat. Does that make sense? So it basically, this parasite changes the behavior of a cat in order for the cat to be eaten. I'm sorry, I'm messing you up. I'm messing you up. It changes the behavior of the mouse. Let's, let's do that again. Rewind. Okay, rewind. It changes. Okay, so it, it infects the mice. It changes the behavior of the mice in order to be eaten by the cat because this parasite does best in the gut of the cat. I got that straight. Yeah. So, okay. So, how's that for behavior modification? <laughs> I don't want you guys to have bad dreams tonight. But any. So the point I'm trying to make is really you are, and there's a lot more. It's not just your biology. It's the zeitgeist, it's the conditioning, it's the context, it's, it's where you are, it's the relationship in, in this room, um, everything, we're all affecting each other right now in subtle ways. We're, it's, it's not just the activity of your brain, it's everything. It's the same way that, that we have how many trillion connections in our brain, we have trillion ways that our being, our whole humanness is affected, is, is bigger than one thing. So appreciating, um, really bowing to all of that. So being a scientist of your own mind having curiosity, investigation. Curiosity and investigation has been very, very dear to my heart as, as a scientist. Natural curiosity. Einstein says the important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a, a holy curiosity. I love that. Never lose a holy curiosity. And this is your laboratory. Your first person research experience with holy curiosity. Ah, oh, look at that. This is what's happening. This is what's arising. In Buddhism, this is called Dhamma-vichaya, investigation factor, which is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Is called Dhamma-vichaya, investigation, curiosity. Isn't it lovely that curiosity investigation is one of the seven factors of enlightenment? I think that's pretty cool as a scientist. I think that rocks. 
So it's been translated in various ways as truth discerning wisdom, investigation of states, etc. And this investigation, this Dhamma Vichaya, is not so much a heady investigation, intellectual, kind of from the intellectual tower, okay, what's happening in the body? It's, It's not like that. It's an investigation from the inside. It's conducted um, with a sense of your whole being. It's not some somehow actually not so much mindfulness. I actually don't even like the translation of mindfulness. It's more bodyfulness because when we think mind, you know, in the West again, we go to our head where it's actually bodyfulness. It's a full body experiencing, you know, as Rick was talking this morning, or was it last night? Time is flying. Sometimes last month he was talking about, you know, this whole body experience, this expanding. It's it's this first person experience from the inside, this holistic feeling, experiencing. Oh, this is what this feels like. It's not from the control tower. It's really feeling, sensing, being intimate with your experience exploring intimately as you're listening to me right now, actually. Let's experiment with this. Can you feel your breath while you're listening? Can you intimately feel, not think about your breath, but can you feel it? Can you feel your butt on the cushion or the chair? Feel it, not think about it. Can you feel it? Yes, you can, intimately. Yeah, it's, yeah, it feels warm, damp, hard, whatever it feels. I don't know how yours feels. (laughs) Intimate exploring the inner experience. There is so much to investigate in this laboratory. So much to investigate. What to investigate? I'd like to share some pointers. What to investigate? We have a few days together left. What to investigate as you're experimenting? So there are two different ways, two different modes of investigation. One is undirected investigation. The other one is directed. Okay? I'll share some pointers for undirected, kind of open investigation. And then some with the directed. Okay, so with the undirected investigation, it's kind of open. So whether you're in formal meditation or you're in informal daily life, you can drop in the question, what is this? What is this? Like, again, you're dropping in the question into your body, not your head. Like, really, what is this? What is this? What does this feel like? And wait to see what arises. You know, the first layer layer of answers might be obvious or they might surprise you. This is delight. This is anger. This is disappointment. This is crankiness. This is hunger. This is peace. And then treat whatever arises as a guest, honoring it, bowing to it, acknowledging it, And then drop the question again, more deeply, into your body. What is this? And again, similar different questions can come up. This is stillness. This is joy. This is not knowing. This is not knowing. It feels like this. 
it feels like this. Or whatever it might come, the feeling of being arrived in the moment. And as the mind quiets down more and more, gets very subtle, the the inquiry of what is this might seem too heavy-handed. And you might just need to because um, just drop in what question mark or sometimes just a question mark, just huh, kind of like living the question, as Rilke says. Rilke says, "Be patient towards all that is unresolved, unsolved in your heart, and to try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue." Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. At the point, and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answers. So live and love the questions themselves. Live and love the questions themselves. Dropping it in. Just being curious. What is this? What is this? What's happening? So that's pretty undirected inquiry. And that might work for some. It may not work for some. So I like to share with you some directed inquiries that can be applied to various aspects of practice. Directed investigation can be applied to the first, uh, the Four Noble Truths. It can be applied to the First Noble Truth. Where is suffering? Where am I caught right now? Where am I caught? You allow this inquiry. Basically, you let your discomfort, your Suffering, your lack of ease, your uh, stress, be your guide towards ease, towards, towards whatever is ailing you, whatever is the rub, whatever is the rub. Where am I caught? I'll give you an example of this. <clears throat> I was on um, the dentist's chair which is not one of my favorite places to be. And I noticed all of a sudden that that I was really miserable. And nothing was really hot. I mean, there was plenty of Novocaine, you know, he was drilling away, but I was just miserable. Um, there was plenty of first noble truth of suffering. And I asked myself, uh, and, and I noticed my body was really tight, and I was just kind of like, uh, and I was bracing myself for the next moment that I was that was going to hurt. That he, oh, he he's going to hit a nerve. The next moment, I mean, I was perfectly comfortable and safe, and perfectly numbed out in that moment. But I was so tight, expecting the next moment. So when I realized that, I relaxed my body. There was nothing wrong. I was expecting pain in the future. So by dropping in the question, where am I caught? Where am I caught? I was caught expecting pain in the future. Relaxing my body was perfectly fine. And that pain I was expecting, that nerve I was expecting he would hit, he never did. 
it turned out to actually be a pretty nice and relaxing dentist visit, if there is such a thing. You can apply the, the directed investigation to the three characteristics, to the three marks of existence. In Buddhism, it's impermanence, that everything arises and passes away. Everything arises and passes away. And you can have investigation and curiosity about that. Oh, look, the way I was feeling five minutes ago, I was really upset and angry at the world. I'm actually okay now. It's gone away. Impermanent. You can have curiosity about impermanence. Or you can have curiosity, investigation about unsatisfactoriness, about dukkha. That this thing is not inherently satisfying. Not in, nothing inherently in and of itself is satisfying. And n- not self. Who is thinking? Who am I? What am I? You can drop in these questions, but don't expect an answer if you investigate anatta. And I'm touching very briefly for those of you who are familiar with the three characteristics, this is enough of a pointer. And for those who aren't, I trust Rachel is going to be talking about the three characteristics. All right, so she's going to tell you all about it. So you can apply also this investigation factor of investigation to, um, to the breath, to body sensations. You can apply it, so, so now I'm going to share very little about what's called the foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta where the four foundations of mindfulness teachings come from. So the first foundation is the body. You can have curiosity about the body, about your energy, about your breath, about the sensations, about the raw sensations. Just be very curious about everything. And that way, both the mind can really settle with curiosity and and engage. And you might discover things you never noticed about yourself. Be surprised. You'll be amazed the kind of things you can learn about yourself. Which, by the way, when I say learning about yourself, it's these insights that you can have about yourself, about your body, is from the personal to the universal. I'll say that again. The insights that you might have in this, in this first-person ex- uh, investigation might seem personal, but they're actually doorways from the personal to the universal. And I'll leave that as an exercise for the practitioner. You can have inquiry about Vedana or feeling tone, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. Feeling tone is actually a very powerful, uh, very important investigation. What that simply is, is everything that arises in your sphere of experience is labeled as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Shorthand, neutral. So everything the mind labels as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's a wonderful inquiry 
The one person actually today in the practice meeting shared this, and I asked them whether I could share it, and they said yes, which is a beautiful inquiry. So they said they noticed that there was some sound in the hall. Somebody was making a sound, and they found it annoying. There was aversion to it. And then they became curious. Oh, why do I consider this sound unpleasant, but I consider the sound of the birds pleasant? What's up with that? That's the inquiry. That's the curiosity. So they sat with it like, what, why is it? Why is the mind labeling? It's just the sound, right? It's just sound waves hitting the eardrum, blah, blah, blah. You know, the mind is labeling one as, stop it, make him stop. The other one is like, you know, great bird, awesome, lovely. So with that inquiry, and he said, he thought, well, actually, you know, this person uh, who's making the sound, the noise, I have metta for them. I, I want them to be happy. I want them to have a great practice and a great retreat. So that metta then changed the sound this person was making to be pleasant. It was no longer unpleasant. Like, wow, check that out. The flexibility of the mind, labeling things, pleasant, unpleasant. So, And that inquiry for this person started with the curiosity. Oh, I wonder, right? So curious about pleasant, unpleasant. Why is this thing pleasant? Why is the mind labeling it as unpleasant? So basically, there's so many ways you can apply the curiosity. Be curious about your mind states. What is your mind state right now? Be curious about it. Can you feel what your mind state is right now? Can you have some curiosity about it? Whatever it is. So moving on, being a scientist of your own mind, having perseverance. A scientist hangs out in the lab late practicing, experimenting. I share a word with you, one of my favorite words from, um, from Pali, atapi, A-T-A-P-I, atapi, translated as patient perseverance, patient perseverance. It's hanging in there, it's patient. Patient perseverance, patient perseverance. So have atapi with your breath. It doesn't mean that you become tight with your breath but you have this patient, this gentle perseverance. It's gentle. You keep coming back to your body. You keep coming back to the breath. So it's gentle, but it's persevering over and over and over and over again. It's, does that make sense? Gentle persevering. Gentle, but over and over and over again. And lastly, I like to finish by by talking about inspiration and aspiration. Doing this practice, like a scientist, not to get something, not to get an award or get something or get a better self or improve yourself, or, but, but to do it with love because you love, because of you love and care so much about yourself, about people you love, about this 
about this planet, about humanity, doing it with love, so much so that reducing suffering alone, it almost seems like a low bar. That's, that's just something that will happen along the way. Or the end of suffering. There becomes a point in practice that the end of suffering alone seems lacking. Do this work out of love for yourself, for others, for the path. The practice then becomes who you are, and you become the path. The path becomes your life, how you live your life with touching into the dimensions of the sacred, the mystery, the divine, your life then will feel sacred. You want to fall and kiss the ground in awe like a real scientist. Einstein says, A human being is part of the whole, called by us, the universe, a part limited, a part limited in time and space. They experience themselves, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of their consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. Let's just sit together for a minute and let the words fall. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. Albert Einstein. Thank you for your kind attention. Feel free to take whatever is useful to you and leave whatever is not. And may you have an inspired and filled with curiosity and investigation practice.